Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. You know, this is the third Sunday in this worship series, and every time I see that slide, it still gives me anxiety. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's really terrifying, isn't it? Like, though, looks like it could be a papal bowl and, like, stamped out in red. And that word is evocative, right? Heresy makes us think of, like, an unforgivable sin. It makes us think of things that we would never want to be convicted or even accused of saying ourselves and we've been on this journey after easter through some of the heresies that have been idolized some of them that have been hopefully eradicated from the thought process of christians but some of which are still continuing to be conversations and sometimes tripping stones for christians and so we started with one that has had incredible consequence which is supersessionism the idea that god has replaced the jews with christians and therefore the jews are no longer beloved people of god and how that has been lived out over the years in humanity we also looked last week at one that is probably not going to cause the death of anybody unless you are burning somebody at the stake for modalism but modalism instead is kind of a a misunderstanding of the persons of the trinity and it's it's a it's a shame it's a tragedy it's probably not one of god's favorite things to hear come out of our mouths but at the same time it's not as deadly as other heresies can be but today we're going to talk about docetism Don't you get excited with those big words? Docetism. D-O-C-I-T-I-S-M, I I believe. Docetism. And docetism actually comes from the Greek word dokin, which means to appear or to seem. So it's looking like something or kind of mimicking something. However, it's a problematic word for us because it's also at the root of doxology. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a root word that we both love and then causes us difficulty. Fortunately, as English speakers, we don't usually get caught up in that. But when we look at it today, we're going to be looking at a heresy that actually does cause problems because if you internalize this heresy, you end up externalizing things that are both hurtful to God, but also can be a a tripping stone, a stumbling block for other people. Now, docetism uh, is an ancient heresy. It actually started creeping up into Christianity in about the second, third century. Um, It was finally completely outlawed. And you like how we outlaw thought? (laughs) outlawed in the third century by one of the councils. But the problem is that if you go back and you look at where docetism comes from, it is quite understandably something that emerges from the culture of the people who were around in those first couple of centuries, who were in a place where Christianity was still emerging, a time when some Christians were being deeply persecuted because of their belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his salvific death upon the cross, and the idea that God would love all people. Some of that was just too profound for people at that time. And so there was a lot of persecution happening. The other thing that happened is that Christians suddenly stopped being willing to worship the Roman Empire. 
willing to see the emperor as divine or, or semi-divine. And so all of these things are happening in the lives of people and they're trying to make sense of their world. And one of the ways that this ends up emerging is in docetism. So I have a quote for you from the Gospel According to Heretics, Discovering Orthodoxy Through Early Christological Conflicts, which I will never make you read. <laughs> David Willett writes this book, and in here he will list three forms of docetism. Oh, it's D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M for those of you who are keeping track of docetism. Spelling is not one of my spiritual gifts. Okay, so here we go. Here's the first one. Phantasmal docetism, in which Christ appeared to be flesh, but in reality was only spirit. And actually, this form is very rare in the ancient sources. This wasn't truly what people were often expressing. This just ghost Jesus, phantom Jesus. That wasn't what they were talking about. But it has been put forth in the ages. The second is possessionistic docetism. This is a form in which Christ appears to be in flesh, but in reality has attached himself to Jesus the human, much as a demon possesses a person. This form is found frequently in the ancient sources, and also there is virtually no difference between this form and some kinds of adoptionism as discussed in chapter 2. I, let, I mean, just pause for a moment and think about that. It's like Christ is a demon attaching itself to human Jesus. That's rather insulting, isn't it? <laughs> like, uh, that's just not how we want to think about the incarnation. And it's not. And part of the problem is that people were only taking into account the baptism that is articulated in the first three gospel accounts, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there very clearly, but in, a, in kind of a divergent of ways, there comes to be the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon Jesus as he is coming out of the water. And in that, some people wrongly believed that that was the moment that Jesus became divine. That that was the moment when the indwelling of God took place and that therefore Jesus became divine, which is different than the, doc than the doctrine of the Trinity, which says that Christ, God the Son, always was and then became incarnate on the day that we celebrate as Christmas. So the possessionistic docetism is, again, a little bit insulting to God. Um, it also is problematic because... There are plenty of people across this span of human history who have wanted to believe that they too could become a god. Wanted to believe that achieving divinity, such as Hercules or Achilles, that some of these people, especially in Greco-Roman literature and religion, was a possible possibility for us. And so instead of elevating Jesus Christ, instead it brings Jesus Christ down to our level and we seek to climb up. And so that's not really the direction of our theology. But the last one is really where we start to get into problems. The last form of docetism is replacement docetism, in which Christ appears to be crucified, but in reality, Simon of Cyrene took his place. This form of docetism is also very rarely found in the sources, but yet it seems to be a compelling part of how docetism exists. Now, let's go back and talk about where this is coming from. I mean, where did this idea originate that people thought that maybe Jesus didn't actually die on the cross? And it, it originates from a couple of different sources all kind of coming together. And the first is that the people in the Greco-Roman Empire had been exposed for over 400 years by the time Jesus was born to Platonic thinking. 
Plato existed back um, in the fifth century BC, and he had developed this duality of human being, that you are both a body and a soul. Now, Plato also took kind of the perspective that there was a hierarchy of those things, and your body was the lesser, and your soul was greater. And the goal of a, a worthy life was to focus less on the body and more on your soul. Now, Christians continue to kind of articulate some form of this Platonic soul a lot of times. And the problem is that sometimes, if taken to the nth degree, people no longer pay any heed to the body. They start to reject it completely, or they don't give any credence to those who are suffering in their body. People who have experienced uh, some kind of tragic accident that has left them disabled. People who have been born into disability or who have been born with a syndrome that keeps them from experiencing the fullness of life of others. Or people who have developed a disease or an illness that is bringing them closer and closer to the day of their own death. These sorts of things kind of become irrelevant even though they are a huge part of our experience in, in life. And so we kind of relegate those things as irrelevant. But the problem in life is that our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our heart center, and I usually focus here for spirituality is like the center, the core, the depths of our being. All four of those are part of being a complete person in the scriptures and in Christianity. And the longer I live, the more I notice that when one of those is off, it will affect all the others. You can have a strong spirituality, you can have healthy emotions, and you can have a rigorous thought process that is fruitful for you, and then when your body starts to decompress, it can suddenly affect all of those. For someone who is experiencing long-term illness, for someone who has suddenly had their entire mobility transferred in the instant through an accident, all of that will now begin to change how you think and how you feel and your spirituality. And the inverse is true. People who are struggling with mental health can find it in affecting their physical being through exhaustion, uh, through all kinds of other ways that the body actually starts to reflect the pain and the suffering of the mind, and likewise the emotions and the spirit. So all of these things are tied together for us in humanity. And while we might want to be like, the body doesn't matter, the fact is that you're going to need your body for a little while longer. And so your body is going to matter to you. And if you've ever experienced this where you've gone through a period of health issues or you've had a radical change in your mobility or your ability to live life the way you would want to, to do so, then you know that it really does matter to you. It does matter, and nobody else should be telling you that it doesn't. It matters. And God said the same thing. If your body didn't matter, then God would not have spent so much time in Jesus Christ healing helping people to find that wholeness, and again, giving eyesight back to the blind, helping the mute to speak, helping those who are experiencing some sort of possession that puts them out of their right mind and liberating from that. Jesus spent all this time paying attention to the human body, so much so that when he saw people were hungry, he fed them. He didn't tell them, well, you know, your body doesn't really matter. He said to his apostles, Feed them, because your body matters. You're going to need your body. And if anybody has figured out how to not need their body, that would be a really uh, interesting thing. But for the most part, I think we pretty much need our bodies. 
And so our bodies become a major way for us to experience God's glory, to experience God's love and compassion, because when Jesus was in earthly ministry, at one point we come to the time when Lazarus has died. Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, had been very good friends with Jesus and his disciples, and they periodically, when they would come down toward Jerusalem, would stop at Bethany where those three siblings lived and would be there, and they would host not just Jesus and his 12 apostles, but everybody else who was following around. And so you get to the point in the narrative where Lazarus has died, and Jesus has a conversation even before he gets to Bethany with his apostles where he says, Lazarus is asleep and I am going to go wake him. Now Jesus is using the metaphor of sleep for death and that he is going to awaken or resurrect Lazarus. And the apostles aren't sure exactly what's happening, but they follow Jesus anyway. And when he gets down there, he has two very powerful encounters with the sisters who are mourning their dead brother. Both Martha and Mary indicate to Jesus in their verbal encounters that if Jesus had been here, that Lazarus wouldn't have died, that Jesus could sustain the body, that God can give life to that which is failing in this world. And so Jesus, knowing that he has come to resurrect Lazarus, Jesus, knowing that their pain will be short-lived, that he's going to literally turn their mourning into rejoicing, has this moment, though, where he sees the effect of death in the community. All of these people in the community have gathered. They are mourning outwardly, visibly, loudly, and so are Martha and Mary. And their devotion to Jesus has not waned, but their sorrow has multiplied. And seeing all of that suffering, Jesus' body responds and weeps. The body matters. And so Jesus then does what only God can do, resurrects Lazarus and returns his body and all that he is to his sisters, to the community, and to this life, returns them. And the author of 1 Peter is telling us that the same is important for us to remember. We already sang a hymn this morning about the cross and the glory of the cross, and that Christ suffered that we would not. And 1 Peter goes on to remind us that Jesus did not use earthly, bodily suffering as, a, as an excuse to cause pain and suffering. That instead, he was abused, but did not return abuse. He suffered. He did not threaten. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that free from sin, we might live for righteousness. And so the body matters. And when you hear this, this thing about maybe it was Simon of Cyrene, can you imagine how insulting that would be to Jesus Christ? That the one who came and suffered absolute horrific, emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual pain on that day if we mocked it by making it just a show, a sham, a display. 
And there were literally people who believed that somehow, because they couldn't fathom the idea that God would die on the cross for us, that instead, that moment in the Synoptic Gospels when it describes that Jesus is exiting the city of Jerusalem and is carrying the cross beam and is moving toward Golgotha or Calvary, depending on which translation you like, moving toward where he will be crucified, he is exhausted. He's been up for over 24 hours. He has been beaten. He hasn't been fed. And he has just been absolutely tortured in his human body. And he fails. He falls. And then the soldiers conscript Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way into the city, to pick up the crossbeam and carry it the rest of the way, as only Roman soldiers felt entitled to do. And so somehow, those that were proponents of docetism, especially this replacement docetism, wanted to tell people that in that moment, Suddenly, everybody no longer recognized Jesus as Jesus, and they thought that Simon was Jesus, and Jesus allowed an innocent person to be crucified in his stead. I wonder what the Savior will look like on the throne on the day of resurrection when people recount that. It's insulting, and it's a little demented that we would think that God would do that to another person. If God wanted to crucify another person, God didn't need to come down in human form and do that. The Roman Empire was happy to do that all day long. You didn't need God to do that. It lessens the incarnation. It lessens the importance of the earthly ministry and the salvific death of Jesus Christ. Instead, it makes it so that we are comfortable because that's what it's about. In a world now where so many people are struggling with the divinity of Jesus, how could Jesus be God? I mean, there's a growing number of Christians even who are like, he was a great teacher, good philosopher. No, he was a little more than that. We are living in a world that is the opposite of what the Gnostics were living in, who were big proponents of docetism. The Gnostics, that G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, Gnostics, or as one of my preschoolers once said when they were in my office, what's Gnostic? I was like, what? And then I looked over because I have a whole shelf of heresy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's Gnostic. And the preschooler went, but there's a G. And I said, yes, I know. And they said, but there's a G. And I was like, isn't it time for class? <laughs> but there's a G there, right? Gnostics. The Gnostics were a people of thought. They were a people who believed that knowledge was power and power over, not power for, but power over. They believed that they had the right thought and you had the wrong thought, unless they liked you, in which case they would indoctrinate you with the right thought. But they used it to hold themselves over other people. Now, the Gnostics actually predate Christ a little bit, but when they started to hear the Christian movement, they wanted to fold Jesus Christ into their belief. And in order to make that work, they couldn't have God die. They were fine with having a God around, but they were not okay with having that God die. And now Christians have struggled with this, by the way. Christians struggle with the implications of a fully human yet fully divine Jesus Christ. Because there was actually a Christian theologian at one point who wanted people to believe that Jesus' earthly human body only worked from here up. Didn't want to think about anything that happens in your body from here down. Now, I understand that. There's a lot of things that we don't talk about happening down there. However, I'm pretty sure that if Jesus didn't work from here down and Mary had to never change a diaper, we would have read about it. 
all the ladies in Nazareth would be like, why, why is she not changing a diaper? What is, over, what is happening here? Because I'll tell you what, working around children for the last 15 years and having my own child, the day they become potty trained is like Easter. Hallelujah! And the diapers, right? And if Jesus had never had to need a diaper, that would have been amazing. That in itself would be a miracle we'd all be reading about. Instead, Jesus knew what it was like to have a human body, all of the problems of a human body. Jesus knew that. I know sometimes we like to think that just because Jesus didn't sin, that Jesus didn't know what it was like to be a human. I'm sure he knew what it was like to have a stomachache. I'm sure Jesus knew what it was like to have a cold, because having a cold does not equate to being a sinner, right? I'm sure Jesus knew what it was like to be too hot, to be too cold, to be exhausted, to be able to not sleep, to have too much sleep and not be able to wake up and do what you got to do. I'm sure Jesus knew what it was like to eat a bad piece of fish, because let's talk about the time in the world that we were living in. I'm sure Jesus knew what it was like to have a body and all the blessings and all the burdens of that body in one. I'm sure Jesus knew. And that's okay. That doesn't make God any less present because God now knows what it's like to be in these bodies. Doesn't make us any less incredibly privileged to have a God who came to us in human form. And it doesn't detract from God. If anything, that makes me respect God all the more. Because if you didn't have to deal with all the problems of your body, would you? Would you? But instead, God chose that because it brought God closer in proximity to us. God wanted to be right here with us. And God wanted to show us that. I am coming to you, right? I will be with you, Emmanuel, God with you. And for once, people were like, oh my gosh, God is here in a new way, in a way that isn't terrifying, like in the tabernacle or the temple. God is right here. And God is laying on hands, and God is speaking truth, and God is healing and helping and loving and forgiving and showing people a better way to be a human being. That's what the incarnation is about. And docetism kind of denies the entire incarnation. That's a problem. It's a problem. Especially if you start to go down the rabbit hole that is that substitutionary docetism, right? If you're willing to substitute Simon of Cyrene for Jesus, making all of that a show. I mean, it makes Jesus a liar after the resurrection. Jesus comes back and sees his disciples, and repeatedly, what does he do? Look at my hands and my feet. Look at my side. Put your hands in here and see that it is me. And if that wasn't true, if that didn't happen, then he's simply pretending to be the Messiah. Because he didn't die on the cross. Simon did. So why is Jesus faking wounds? We don't believe that to be true. Part of the problem with the Gnostic Christians was that they weren't reading the whole Bible. They were just reading pieces of it. Sound familiar? And that will always get you into trouble when you only read pieces. It will always get you into trouble because somebody will come along and go, no, 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 no. There's more happening in the Bible than just that. That doesn't work, right? By his stripes, we are healed. That's all the way back in Isaiah. You can go way far back into the Bible and find out that God was prepping us for the incarnation of Jesus Christ long before Advent, long before but instead, people have to be right. They felt like they needed to have the right answers. And Gnostics aren't evil people. They're not evil people, but they weren't right either. 
And the problem is that the more that they started to think about that, the more things started to get twisted. If it's okay for God to pluck an innocent person and have them crucified in God's place, then it's okay to say that for the benefit of the many, one may suffer. We are not utilitarian. We don't believe that. Because I'm sure we could all think about somebody that we would love to torture and have suffer if the rest of us didn't have to do that. But we can't be those people. We don't offer people up as scapegoats and sacrificial lambs anymore. We don't have to do that because God has come and taken it all, all in God's self. So docetism is a real threat to salvation by the cross. Docetism is a real threat to whether or not we believe what God says about God's self throughout the scriptures. Does God really want to come and be with us or is God just pretending? And if you've ever had the opportunity to watch children, or you remember when you yourself were a child, children used to pretend, right? Let's pretend. Let's play cops and robbers. Let's play princesses and princesses when I grew up, because what else were we going to be but princesses? And so you play all these things, and you're like, this is my role, and this is your role, and we'll act this out for a little bit, and then we'll reevaluate, right? This is what we'll do. We'll just play act at it. God was not play acting in Jesus Christ. God was absolutely 100% eternally serious about coming here for you and for me and for every other human being in the world. And we need to honor that truth. We've got to honor it. And so, no, we're not going to, you know, persecute anybody. There's not going to be any pyres outside for, for docetism. You know, we're not going to go, oh my gosh, you're a modalist and it's all over. But the truth is, that when you start to go a little further, you realize that these thoughts have effects. They have ramifications, because if you start to think about things differently, you're going to feel about things differently, and then you are going to act out things differently. It happens. It never stays inside, no matter how much you want to. Have you ever been talking to somebody and they have no game face? Because what you're saying is really obnoxious, right? And you, you have some people that have game face, sure, but then you have other people that the more you talk, the more it's like... Are you done? Right? You know. You know you have people that can't do that because they're thinking, you're wrong. You're crazy. What is this? And pretty soon, they're feeling it, and the next thing you know, their body's like, let me just amplify that. Let me just reveal this to the world. Right? Absolutely. So you know that what is happening in here and in here will be revealed here. It will happen. Some people have really good self-control and they can lock it down for a while, but it always peaks out. Always, always, always. And so we know that our bodies are amplifiers for what's happening within, for revealing what's happening within. That's why when something is so good and so joyful and so righteous, we smile. That is why when something is so powerful and so transformative, something that is so beyond our ability for words, we, like Christ, weep. Because sometimes the body can speak volumes that the mind and the mouth cannot. And that's God's gift to us. Is that sometimes our bodies will say it all. And so we can't allow that kind of thought process in. And the Gnostics, they, they kind of, you know, every now and then, Gnostic thought kind of resurrects itself in the church. It doesn't last very long because, you know, we just did this after Easter. I'm pretty sure we all celebrated the resurrection. 
We all celebrated that, that Christ arose and that tomb was empty. And so we know, we know that. And so if somebody came up to you and was like, actually, Jesus didn't die on the cross, most of us would be like, what? What are you talking about? Of course Jesus died on the cross. And if somebody came up to you and said, actually, Jesus didn't want to die on the cross and like made somebody else look like Jesus and he died on the cross, your response would be, that is not the Christ I know and love. That is not the Jesus that I know. That is not the Jesus testified to in the scriptures. That is not the Jesus that is the tradition of our Christianity. That is not the Jesus that I think about or that I feel about. And that is certainly not the Jesus that I experience in this world. And so you are empowered to do that. But if you aren't empowered to do that all the time, then eventually somebody might make you question some of your things. Now here's the good news. You could probably believe in docetism and it may not pervert a lot of people's thought process and maybe it'd be okay. Maybe, maybe. I'm not gonna let you teach Sunday school, but maybe, right, maybe. But here's the bigger problem. Docetism is a problem for you. It's a problem for you because it affects how you understand Jesus Christ. And that's not a good thing. You know, it's not okay, well, all the rest of us are fine, but you have really messed up that relationship. That's not okay. We want all of our relationships to be absolutely glorious with God. Not just mine, yours, all of us. We want everyone to have that experience. And so it matters what we think. And so even now, as people wrestle with their theologies, as people are trying to figure out, what is it I really believe? Sometimes the safest thing is really, I believe in a God who gave it all up that I might live. And there's nothing wrong with that theology. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.